Welcome to the Essential Southern Podcast, where we explore the rich history, culture, and traditions of the American South. Welcome to the Essential Southern Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McClanahan, and this podcast is sponsored by the Abbeville Institute. Go to abbevilleinstitute.org, A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org, and support the Institute. You can click on that Donate tab, we do exist on your generous contributions alone. So our mission to explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition is vital for modern American society. So go to abbevilleinstitute.org, click on that support tab. You can donate to the full extent of the law, either monthly, annually, or a one-time gift. So we do appreciate all that you do, and it keeps this podcast going. So consider that as you enjoy this program. All right, well, let's talk about the topic, which is Southern conservatism, Emmy Bradford. Uh, this is a, a giant in the Southern conservative movement. Uh, Bradford died in 1994. And if you think about some of the great scholars who have contributed to the intellectual Southern tradition, you know, Bradford's among them. Richard Weaver in the 20th century, Mel Bradford, also the Southern agrarians. Bradford wrote a lot for publications popular and academic. He was a pro prolific writer. Uh, he considered himself more of a literary critic than anything. Uh, that's what he liked to do. Uh, he taught at the University of Dallas. Uh, but he also wrote great works of history. I mean, you look at, uh, for example, uh, Original Intentions, which is a collection of essays on the Constitution. Uh, you look at his book that's now titled The Founding Fathers, published by University of Kansas Press. An amazing collection of the biographies of the men who participated in the Philadelphia Convention. Uh, he wrote several collections of essays that were published all over the place. I mean, Bradford, again, published in both scholarly and popular publications. And he was always, always prescient. Bradford understood what was happening. He could see it better than most. And at one time, Bradford was going to be considered for a federal position. Uh, the National Endowment for the Humanities, Ronald Reagan, uh, appointed him to that position, or at least floated his, his appointment. It was opposed immediately by the neoconservative faction in the Republican Party, people like Bill Bennett, George Will. They opposed it, and Reagan withdrew the nomination. And that really changed the direction of American conservatism. It was one of those things, and you know, this, is, this is in the weed stuff, 1980 into 81 when uh, this was going on. And basically what happened at that point is that Southern conservatism was buried. And that was, that was the objective. Right? This is what the neoconservatives wanted to do. They wanted to bury Southern conservatism because they saw it as a drag, a drain, on what they saw as the glorious future of American conservatism. This is Harry Joffa. Now, Harry Joffa actually supported Bradford's nomination, which is interesting. He did. But Bradford and Jaffa had a long-standing debate about the meaning of American conservatism. Uh, Jaffa had published a piece that uh, made equality, quote-unquote, a conservative principle. And Bradford immediately took him to task for that. And so that debate formed this fissure, this schism, so to speak, in American conservatism all over Abraham Lincoln. And we're still seeing that. It's a vital part of what under, understanding what American conservatism is and where it's going and how it works is that debate over Lincoln. We're still seeing it with the West Coast Straussians. They're right on a lot of positions. But when you get to the core of Lincoln, they're always going to turn out wrong. 
because when you start with Lincoln, you're going to eventually get American leftism. It's inevitable. And this is what Bradford was pointing out throughout his life. And this is what Southern conservatives said throughout their time and writing in journals and books and everything else they were doing. So I thought it would be nice to talk about Bradford. There are so many things we could do with Bradford. We'll probably do more with Bradford on this Essential Southern podcast. But I wanted to start with an article that we actually published at the Institute. This was published by permission um, from uh, ISI Books. It was actually in the book American Conservatism, an encyclopedia. And the title is Southern Conservatism. And so Bradford wrote this before he, of course, before he died uh, back in the, in the 1990s. And I thought this would be vital for understanding a part of the Southern tradition. It's a part of the Southern tradition. But to put it also in context, uh, if you've been paying attention in the last week or so, there's been a song that's taken America by storm, Oliver Anthony's Rich Men North of Richmond. And when you listen to that song and the lyrics of the song, and some people have said, you know, it's not musically, it's not great. I agree. It's not a great tune musically. The lyrics, when I first heard it, it's like, yeah, this is pretty good. But I get why people like it. And it is the Southern conservatism, the Southern tradition, which is what Bradford is talking about here, is the one unifying force in America. It's why it has to be resisted. From all the establishment forces, whether on the left or the right, it has to be resisted. And that's all that Oliver Anthony was doing in that tune, was essentially talking about Southern conservatism. He's a Southern conservative, not an American conservative. There is a difference. He's gone on record saying he's anti-war, for example. Well, Southern conservatives did that too. They were not principled anti-war all the time, but when you look at what happens in the Southern tradition of what happens, say with Vietnam, a lot of Southerners started opposing that war for good reason. Now, Southerners can be just as imperialistic as other Americans. But the Southern position, the Jeffersonian position, was always identified with more or less anti-war sentiment. And you look at some of the other things, the very populist message of the song. Very Southern in the Southern tradition and Southern conservatism. So that's why it resonates with people. They just don't realize it. That's That's the sad part about it. They don't realize that this is coming from a place. Oliver Anthony... As he sang about in a song, his song entitled Virginia, Oliver Anthony is singing about the Southern tradition. This is why it's powerful. People just don't realize it. They think Southern tradition is going to be these bad things. What they don't get and what Harry Jaffa didn't get and all these people didn't get, as Bradford points out in this essay, they're distorting American conservatism for a gain that's never going to be realized and will always lead to its own destruction. It's self-consuming. So, let's talk about this piece. Again, uh, Southern conservatism. Bradford says, Southern conservatism, as opposed to the generic American variety, I just said, Oliver Anthony is a Southern conservative, not an American conservative, is a doctrine rooted in memory experience, and prescription rather than it's in goals or abstract principles. Rooted in memory. And I'll just relate this back to Anthony. He's an old soul in a new world. An old soul that it's memory, experience. His experience is coming through the song. What's his experience? Well, you've got 
miners, coal miners, people that aren't being respected while you got this corruption going on somewhere else. You've got people that, young men that are facing mental health issues. He talks about it. Why are they depressed? Why are young men so sad about life right now? Well, because they're being crushed by the system. And that's what he talks about. It's the system. You got inflation. You got high taxes. They don't appreciate hardworking, blue-collar people. Right? Memory is work, right? Experience. These are his experiences. Worked in a factory. He's a farmer. These are experiences. And prescription rather than goals or abstract principles. There's no goals or abstract principles in that tune. It's prescription. You got people that are starving. You've got abstract principles and things. He talks about welfare, and, but you've got these abstract principles. He doesn't talk about abstractions. He's not into the proposition nation. He doesn't mention any of that. These are things that he's looking at, real experiences, showing him these things are wrong. So Southern conservatism is these things. That's the song. Rich men, north of Richmond. North of Richmond, meaning anything above Virginia. It could be D.C., it could be New York, it could be Massachusetts. You could also say west of Richmond, too. There's no abstractions, though. It's real. It's reality. That's why it, that's why it hits so hard for people. It is part of a non-negotiable Southern identity with which it is prior to what it means. Not the consequence of dialectics or reasoning. It emerges from a historical continuum engendered by a recognizable people who have, over a long period of time, a specific set of experiences. So it's tradition, right? It's based on these traditional things. It's not ideology. It's not dialectics or reasoning. It's history or historical continuum, meaning a tradition, by a recognizable people, Southerners, who have a specific set of experiences. That's what Anthony's talking about. Again, this all relates back. This conservatism antedates the American Revolution, and after much attenuation can be found in the region of, to this day, legalistic, rhetorical, retrospective, defined by its past and unthinkable in any other setting than the one which shaped its unfolding. This is, I mean, this first paragraph is meat, right? This is great stuff for understanding what the Southern tradition means. That's why it's an essential Southern document. The political theory of Southern conservatism from the 17th century has been localistic and legalistic. Localistic. I'm singing from Virginia. I'm singing from South Carolina. I'm singing from Georgia. I'm a person from these places. We focus on the local and legalistic, willing to acknowledge that government is natural among men, but self-government, though not if organized by extrinsic or a priori ideas, and providing for the preservation of a culture and way of life ground, grown out of its beginnings, not in the language of I'll take my stand in 1930, poured in from the top. Virginia is Virginia not because it's because of how it grew up, not because it came in from the top and somewhere else, which would be the proposition nation. You see, when you're rootless, when the place where you're from doesn't matter, but only the ideas matter, you get something entirely different.
Always, Southern conservatism has acknowledged a precious Anglo-American continuity. That's that legal part of it, right? There's there's something that goes back. We have this Anglo-American continuity, right? Jeff Sessions got in trouble for saying that one time. We have an Anglo-American. Oh my gosh, how can you say that? Well, American, it doesn't that doesn't identify race, if you want to put it in a larger perspective. I mean, this is the Anglo-American political and legal tradition. It's different than, say, a French tradition or a Spanish tradition or a Chinese tradition. It's different. A Japanese tradition is different. When you think about, for example, uh, politics in Central and South America, that's more of a Spanish tradition in what you get there. America grows the way it does because of the influence of Angoland, because of the Anglo influence. If it had been Spanish or French, it would have been different. France is a unitary state. Now, Canada, of course, had some French influence first. And Quebec is different from the rest of Canada. So you, you have that. You can see it clearly there. A history preserved, I'm sorry, a heritage preserved, first of all, through veneration of the British Constitution and of institutions derived from our colonial English past and our struggle to resist presumption and high-handedness from the mother country without surrendering our patrimony as overseas Englishmen. So, that's where it comes from, right? Th this is really important stuff to get, Virginia being the heart of it all. This is what we're doing with the 1607 Project, the Institute, which is going to be out in the spring, I'm sure, of 2024. Just trying to work it all together and put it all together. We're, this is why your donations are necessary to keep this stuff going. But this matters. These things matter when you think about the tradition, the Southern tradition, Southern conservatism, how that tradition, where it comes from, what it means. That's why I love that first paragraph of this essay. He says, This conservatism is both historic and principled in not insisting on rights anterior to or separate from the context in which they originally emerged. It's, it's not rights anterior to or separate from the context. What the Declaration of Independence says, if we read all of it, and not just one sentence, if we read all of it, and not just the first sentence of the second paragraph, if you read it all, you're going to get a different kind of interpretation or understanding of the Declaration than one sentence. That's the danger of the Declaration, and it's cherry-picking and taking stuff out of context from the context in which they originally were. No city on a hill to which we as mortal men will someday arrive is presumed by it. No New England millennium. You already have it. It's that tradition. It's not going to something else. There's not some idea, as Joe Biden likes to say, not some idea that we'll get to. We can read much of the story of the beginnings of Southern conservatism in Richard Beale Davis's intellectual life in the colonial South, or in the cautious voices of the revolution in the South, the Carolinians, such as Edward and John Rutledge, Rollins Lowndes, William Henry Drayton, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, James Iredell, and Samuel Johnston, often more characteristic Southern thinkers than the Virginia radicals. Also from Virginia itself, such revolutionaries by inheritance as Carter Braxton and Edmund Randolph and Patrick Henry 
Benjamin Harrison, William Grayson, and Edmund Pendleton, and from Maryland, such, a, old, such old Whigs as Luther Martin and Samuel Chase. One of the others, of course, is Charles Carroll of Carrollton. So conservative. Carroll of Carrollton, even though he's Catholic. The man was the embodiment of a Southern conservative. This is to mention only a few of the Southerners who, through and beyond the Revolution, expressed a great respect for the British Constitution. And to ignore other non-theoretical framers and the less familiar followers of Jefferson, Madison, Richard Henry Lee, and George Wythe, who were indeed the sometime champions of natural rights. But the great point to be derived from this evidence is that the colonial Southern political piety is a predicate for the rigorous constitutionalism of Southerners and citizens of the New Union that took shape between 1787 and 1790. Notice the dates he says here, 87 and 90. That's a New Union. We're, for, we're, we're feeling this thing out. He doesn't go beyond that. That new union, of course, drafted in 1787, ratified in 1788. You get the Bill of Rights added to the document in 1791, but we're still trying to feel this thing out in these first couple of years. How is this thing going to work? And you have all these people, all these Southerners with input into this. They're starting to pick apart some of the things the Congress really does. 1789, I mean, it's, it's a bad year. And how the Constitution goes down very quickly. But I like this essay, too, because he mentions some very important books. If you don't know uh, Richard Beale Davis's Intellectual Life in the Colonial South, you should pick it up. 1585 to 1763. It's great. This is where Bradford is fantastic. He looks at Southern history in the entirety, not just the war but in the entirety of, of Southern history, which goes back to the colonial period. And that portion of the region's political history, that includes its early experience as part of the Republic and the years of sectional conflict leading up to secession and the war between the states, powerful conservatives work and spoke for the South and refined its doctrine. Indeed, such Southern th thought was, that was not conservative during this period is generally regarded as eccentric or exceptional. Therefore, a catalog of these conservatives is unnecessary. So, again, he's saying Southern thought that was not conservative during this period. It's generally regarded as eccentric or exceptional. So Southern conservatives were the, were the norm. Those who weren't were the other South, right? There was actually, a, I can't remember the writer, the author of the collection of essays, the editor of the essays, but the other South, I think it was Aldine's, the other South, right? These are other voices, other people. The strange South, but there were other people there. The, the, the South wasn't always monolithic. Uh, in, in, in many ways, it never was monolithic. I mean, there's all kinds of different, there's different Souths all over the place, but they generally had a cohesion in how they thought about the powers of the center. To a point. But no summary of this period of regional establishment would be complete without mention of the imaginative literature generated at this time and place. John Pendleton Kennedy's Swallow Barn and the Revolutionary War Romances of William Gilmore Sims as these fictions are as representative of their time as are Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia, and John Drayton's memories, I'm sorry, memoirs of the American Revolution as relating to the state of South Carolina of the previous era deserve mention. So again, Swallow Barn, William Gilmore Sims. In fact, if you really want to get to the Southern tradition, it's often said you should read the literature. That'll bring you to it. Literature speaks to a time and a place, to a people. It is reflective of the culture and the people that write it. 
which of course says very little about our modern society and most of the literature that we get. Both have obvious claims on the attention of those interested in the essence of Southern politics, as do the uh, satiric stories of the frontier humorist George Washington Harris, John, Johnson J- Jones Hooper, William Tappan Thompson, Joseph Glover Baldwin, and Augustus Baldwin Longstreet. Great stuff there. Again, what, what Bradford is pointing out here is you should read Southern literature. That's why this essay is also very good. If you want to get into the Southern tradition, there's a lot to read. It's not just the politics. It's the culture that you got to understand. That's why a couple of episodes ago, I talked about music and what that meant and why I started this show and talking about North, Richmond, North of Richmond. You can't get it. You can't understand that song. Really, I mean... It's simplistic on the surface where you just got, you know, talking about taxes and inflation and these kind of things. But it's deeper than that. Anthony is singing from a place and a time and a people and a tradition. That's what he's singing from. It's where it's coming from. It's coming out of the Southern tradition. It's authentic. Then Bradford, of course, pivots to politics. He says, direct political teaching, not to be ignored, is to be found in Eritor and other controversial writings by John Taylor of Caroline. And John C. Calhoun's disquisition on government and his Fort Hill Address, discourse on the Constitution and government of the United States, and many occasional writings in the speeches and letters of the tertium quiz, John Randolph of Roanoke, Thomas Sumter, Nathaniel Macon, and the two inaugural addresses of Jefferson Davis as president of the Confederate States of America, and the farewell speeches of the Southern Senators who left Washington during the Great Secession winter of 60 and 61. Moreover, it is impossible to consider this this subject and still ignore the political theory of Southern savants like Thomas Roderick Dew, Henry Hughes, Thomas Reed Roots Cobb, George Fitzhugh, Ian Elliott, George Tucker, and George Frederick Holmes, or the social teachings of their impressive contemporaries among Southern theologians like James Henry Thornwell, Benjamin Palmer, Robert Dabney, and Thornton Stringfellow. The study of Southern conservatism after its manifestation in the state ratification conventions that approved the Constitution and before the state conventions that adopted ordinances of secession could be a work of several volumes. I mean, what Bradford says here, there's so much work to be done. I would would argue it's still ready to be done. This is an unplowed field. There are people that have done some of this. But there's still so much more to be done in this. One of the main complaints that uh, people that know things often have is that we all write about the same people all the time. And that's because it's how you sell books, right? I mean, we have hundreds and hundreds, thousands, thousands of books on Abraham Lincoln. Not as many on Jefferson Davis, for example, or any of these people I just mentioned. You've got... Eugene Genovese, The Mind of the Masterclass. And Genovese spent a lot of time talking about Southerners, Southern intellectual history. You've got David Bryan Davis. You've got some people that have written some things um, on this topic. But it still is a field that needs more research and more work done. If you're looking to do something, do it. And it doesn't have to be someone that's in an academic field. I know we get people that listen to the show that are in academic fields. Focus on these people. Bring them out of the shadows. It's important. 
The study of Southern conservatism after its manifestation of the state ratifications, I, just, I said this, Southern conservatism in this era is constitutional, anti-theoretical, anti-rationalistic, localist, and religious. Furthermore, even before the debate concerning slavery, it knows itself as Southern, as is even more the case once it has attempted to realize itself politically in creating a nation of its own. The failure of, the, of this effort in 1865 completed the basic list of ingredients informing the characteristic Southern worldview and its maturity by adding to that list what is sometimes called the tragic sense of life, what a people learn by losing a terrible war. This is something that uh, Sam Irvin used to often talk about. You know, why are Southerners so focused on the war? Because they lost. I mean, it's something people said. Because it shook the glory out. Sam Irvin, actually, a senator from North Carolina, talked about that. War shook the glory out. This is why Southerners focus on it so much. It created a cohesion. Drew Gilpin Faust was an incorrect entirely in her book, Confederate Nationalism. She said the war kind of created this nationalism, but she thinks it entirely created. It didn't exist before that. What Bradford is saying, it certainly existed before that. It, it definitely existed before the war. You've got to read the literature. You have to read some of the other things that are going on, and you'll see it. During our last summer school, we had a great talk by uh, one of our scholars, one of our uh, professors in about William Gilmore Sims in a book review that Sims wrote that got into the heart of this. This is, the, this is before the war, in the 1850s. Sims is writing about a book on the American War for Independence that had basically denounced the Southern participation and said it really didn't happen. New England was the center of all this, and Sims is saying, oh, wait a second here. That's not true. But it was an anti-Southern bias. He's starting to point out, he said, We've always had this. We've always known. Now Bradford pivots to the lost, what's called the lost cause and some of the post-war material. He says, There are several inclusive examinations of the lost cause written by Southern historians after the fact of defeat by soldiers, clergymen, journalists, and legal theorists. The great summary of all this literature is Richard Weaver's A Southern Tradition at Bay. Definitely a book you have to get. It's still in print, or you can get a you know, first edition copy. And later, The Southern Essays of Richard Weaver. A fantastic book went, came out by Liberty Fund, in fact. They published this. Really good stuff. We can recognize a development of the inherited political doctrine and the legal teaching of Albert Taylor Bledsoe, the polemical essay analysis of Edward Pollard and Alexander Stevens, and the personal narratives of Raphael Semmes, Robert Louis Dabney, and Richard Taylor. Taylor's book... Uh, is his journal is just so good, Destruction and Reconstruction, uh, which is to make no appropriate mention of the wartime and post-battle memoirs of Southern women or on the voluminous fiction of the era, A Good Feeling, described by Paul H. Buck and The Road to Reunion. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff out there. Right? You got to read uh, Louisa McCord, for example, or Augusta Jane Evans Wilson. I mean, some of these people. This is great stuff out there that you should read. A big list of things to read, but this is why this is an essential essay. There were, of course, the best days, or these were, of course, the best days of the United Confederate Veterans, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, and Sons of Confederate Veterans. Official piety was ubiquitous and flourished under every imaginable circumstance. But at the South's successful resistance to Reconstruction, there was a persistently... Uh, elegic quality 
and subsequent expressions of loyalty to their inherited political tradition and the culture it had sustained. The continuity of Southern conservatism after 1918 is a matter of intellectual refinement along with a simultaneous practical attenuation. The South remained the backbone of American conservatism, but with less effect and less distinction. True, right? This is, But this only goes forward until about 1980 when it starts to lose all of its influence. It loses all of its influence after 1980 because of the schism that takes place with the Straussians, the neoconservatives and others, and of course the Southern conservative movement. They don't want it anymore. They think it's dangerous and bad. And all that, all this happened, and you look at Trump and things that were happening there, is that he was tapping into this very old conservatism, very old Jeffersonianism. That's what that's what gave Trump, even though he's a he really is a Hamiltonian. Trump really is a Hamilton. He's really a New Deal Democrat. This is what Trump is. But he he rhetorically would tap into some of these things, and he would get these people on board. And again, Oliver Anthony, it's Southern conservatism. Uh, what I find fascinating about you know Russell Kirk's book, The Conservative Mind, he leaves out the South after the war is over because he says the South really can't do anything. And that's partly true. I mean, the South was suffering defeat, economic dislocation, all these things. It really didn't have the, the political might that it had before the war. So you get its vacuum in conservatism. And that creates a period of time where, of course, the, prog- the progressives rise to power and... Um, you get a, a very different political period in America. But eventually the South does come back. But again, the way that it's often characterized is mean-spirited, nasty, these kind of things. Traditional Southern conservatives came to a better historical understanding of their own position and developed a more adequate critique of other, often hostile forces appearing operating the dialectic of American history. American political leaders continued to presuppose the region's conservatism and yet were nervous about it, even though racial questions were no longer taken to be peculiarly problems of the Southern right. From this period, the student of Southern conservatism should read William Alexander Percy's Lanterns on the Levee, J. Everett's Haley, Rough Times, uh, Tough Fiber, I'll Take My Stand by 12 Southerners and Why the South Will Survive by 15 Southerners, Donald Davidson's Attack on Leviathan and Still Rebels, Still Yankees, M. B. Bradford's edition from Eden to Babylon, the social and political essays of Andrew Nelson Lytle, and Andrew Lytle's Awake for the Living. Francis Butler Simpkins' The Everlasting South and Charles P. Rowland's The Improbable Era, the South since World War II. This selection passes over a wide range of imaginative evidence produced by the writers of the Southern Renaissance, evidence which renders in action, tone, and character the traditional vision of the South. And it leaves aside many uncollected essays and works of scholars. Scholarships such as Russell Kirk's John Randolph of Roanoke, Clyde Wilson's Carolina Cavalier, and Eugene Genovese's A Slaveholder's Dilemma. The kind of scholarly achievements that illuminate and reinforce the entire tradition in focusing on its characteristic figures or central problems. Paradoxically, as traditional Southern conservatism loses some of its force in the public life of the region and among a people who have honored its premises for more than 200 years, our understanding of the tradition, its origins, and its justification grows apace. So he's saying that there's this course, he's writing this in the early 90s. There's been a lot of interest in this. Now you've gotten people to take this over who just hate the tradition. That's the real problem. And this is why, of course, the Institute exists to try to preserve some of these things, to keep this stuff going from people who actually love the tradition 
and are really interested in all of the complexities of the tradition, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so to speak, and how those things work, but never to denounce it. In fact, again, at our 20th anniversary conference, there's a, a lecture. And if you want to get those lectures, go to abbevilleacademy.org, abbevilleacademy.org, and you can purchase those lectures. That helps, by the way, uh, because of uh, we're nonprofit, so purchasing those lectures helps. But there was a lecture given that talked about this, how for a long time, it didn't matter if you're on the left or the right, you were distinctively Southern. That's lost some of it, some of its appeal, and how that's dangerous. We've gotten into identity politics, which lose the traditional cultural and historical anchor that they've often had. We've lost all that. So he says, in summary, Southern conservatism is still decentralist, opposed to concentrated authority, inclined to regulate men's lives in a fashion that is arbitrary, indifferent, self-important, and when challenged, arrogant. Rich men north of Richmond. Decentralist, Virginia. Opposed to concentrated authority. They want to control what you think and what you say in a fashion that is arbitrary, indifferent, self-important, and when challenged, arrogant. Oliver Anthony's song is a song of the Southern tradition. That's what, but people don't understand it, but when they hear it, they know it. They just don't know how to identify it. For many people, this is so unique and new because it's been buried. But if he had written this song, say, 40 years ago, people would have understood it. Hank Williams Jr. did it. They understood where it was coming from. It's just been 40 years since we've heard something like this because it's been buried. Now it's coming back. And I'm going to tell you, the establishment can't stand it. Even today, this doctrine continues to be anti-egalitarian, as a biblical parable of the talents is anti-egalitarian, opposed not only to demands for equality of condition, but also to vapid generalizations concerning equality of opportunity, a circumstance which cannot be achieved even by a total submission to government, the negative equality of universal slavery. The industrial cosmopolitan lifestyle, along with the, those political, scientific, and managerial methods of manipulating reality, so well suited to a contemporary assault on the providential order of things, are also rejected, in part for reasons announced most clearly in the introduction to I'll Take My Stand. The industrial cosmopolitan lifestyle, along with those political, scientific, and managerial methods of manipulating reality, so well suited to a contemporary assault on the providential order of things are also rejected in the Southern tradition. Manipulation. The managerial state. These are the problems. There the agrarians speak of religion as our submission to the general intention of a nature that is fairly inscrutable in a sense of our role as creatures within it. But nature industrialized, transformed into cities and artificial habitations, is no longer nature but a highly simplified picture of nature. We receive the illusion of having power over nature and lose the sense of nature as something mysterious and contingent. Modern rationalism rejected the mythopoic vision that makes religion possible. Filtered through these distortions, God is merely an amenable expression. Amiable expression, I'm sorry. At the bottom of agrarianism is a commitment to what Richard Reaver called the older religiousness. In essence, it is an ontology as well as a preference for the agricultural life and an attitude that rejects most versions of the progressive, Faustian myth. 
It's an ontology, not just a preference for the agricultural life, but it, it, it's an attitude that rejects most versions of the progressive Faustian myth. Ignoring the agrarians, many politicians and journalists predicted that the South would lose its character after the conclusion of the Second Reconstruction. They were guilty of wishful thinking. Now, maybe this is the point of the Third Reconstruction, right? Maybe that's going to happen. And I think in some ways it is happening. But that's, what, that's why the Institute exists. That's why this is an essential Southern document, to think about these things, to think about what this stuff means. So he wraps up by saying, traditional Southern conservatism, even when blurred or mixed with other attitudes, maintains a precarious balance. On the one hand, everyone needs to be as independent as is possible to be. Yet some will always have five talents, some three, and some only one. Therefore, responsible members of the tribe, brothers and sisters, uncles and aunts, parents and grandparents, always have to organize the units of the human family to some formula for stewardship, a patriarchal, matriarchal arrangement with most of the operative pressure, not on the state, but on voluntary associations, ties of blood and friendship that are pre-political. Certainly this conservatism is not going to hold that liberty or human rights can exist apart from the context in which they are created and readily subsist. It is not going to accept that such values can be poised as interior to the historical development in particular circumstances. It has to be based, based and rooted on real tangible things and not just ideology. And He gives you some books to read at the end of this, which is fantastic, and some of his... A Better Guide Than Reason, The Reactionary Imperative. Those are both Bradford essays. Genovese, The Southern Tradition, great book. Frank Owsley, Plain Folk of the Old South. John Shelton Reed, The Enduring South, great book. John Donald Wade, Selected Essays and Other Writings. Excellent stuff. Uh, and this is where we certainly have to understand these 20th century Southern thinkers like Bradford and Weaver and others. That's part of the tradition. And again, going back to that great hit now, viral hit, Oliver Anthony's Richmond, North Richmond, that's all that is. It's a traditional Southern anthem calling out the things, the things that are wrong with America that have been foisted on America for a long period of time by arbitrary outside forces. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll see you next time for the next one. See you then.